Revelation chapter 7, uh, this morning, just verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Uh, Dear saints, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the strength and power of your Spirit. And Lord, we do ask that you would help us this morning. Help us to see the meaning of what it means to be sealed. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to know and to believe. And Lord, to live in light of our knowledge that you give to us. Let our love for you increase. Let our faith in you increase as well. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, dear saints, be seated. Uh, Like I said, it is wonderful to be with you all again this morning. And this morning, we are continuing our study through the apocalypse of John. But after last week's sermon, uh, I began to have different conversations with some of you members. uh, And it became clear to me that the understanding of what it means to be sealed was not clear. I think also, and we'll deal with this next week, I think also the understanding of the 144,000 was not clear. And I say that because I had more than two people ask me for clarity. And in my experience, when at least uh, two are willing and brave enough to ask, that probably means there's at least Ten more (laughs) who don't understand. And so this morning, I was impressed to take this Lord's Day to give, Lord willing, a fuller, clearer, and again, Lord willing, a a more encouraging treatment of this third verse, specifically the seal of God. Specifically, the seal of God. If you're taking notes and you would like a title for this sermon, it is very simply the seal of God. What exactly is this seal? I'm not sure if we collectively are able to personally communicate what the seal of God is. As I said, I received more than a few questions. And specifically, the probably the, the two that took it over was me asking Pastor Isaiah and his response was, Yeah, brother, it's a lot. (laughs) And then to my wife who says, yeah, maybe it would be encouraging for you to go over it again. I hope that collectively my concerns are invalid, but I would like to at least err on the side of caution. So the seal for many of us, including myself and maybe just myself. The seal only applied to Satan. As I was raised in church. For many of us, we only believe that there could be one seal, or let me say it this way, one mark. That in scripture, there is only one application to a mark, or one application to a seal, and you already know where I'm going. It is the physical mark of the beast. I pray that today we might see that there is yet another mark. It is God's seal. 
This seal could be also called a mark. The words are um, interchangeable. Mark and seal, it's the same word, it's the same uh, concept being communicated. So today, if you hear me say mark and seal, I mean the same thing. What exactly is this seal? That's a good question. Here's another one, I think. When exactly is someone sealed? What is the seal? When is someone sealed? Here's maybe another helpful question. What is the function of a seal? Or what's the purpose of being sealed, marked? And finally, how does one know that they have been sealed? How does someone know that they have been sealed? Many questions. We will turn to God's word in order to give us the answers prayerfully to those questions. This morning then, with God's help, let us consider uh, five points. And the first one and the last one will be rather short. The the middle three will be uh, more extensive, I think. Let's deal with the first one. Number one, the background of the seal. Where Where is John getting this from? Revelation 7, 3, we've read the verse already. Where is John getting this from? John, of course, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the first answer to that is, where is this, where is John getting this from? He's getting it from God. John is, is being used by God to communicate God's message to God's people. As John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Spirit, writes of this seal, it's a callback to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 9. Most theologians agree that this is the best background for this idea of being sealed. Where's he getting it from? Uh, The best reference to where John's getting this from is Ezekiel 9. Uh, Therefore, when the church has heard of this seal on the forehead, they would have most likely connected this vision immediately to say, Ah, Ezekiel 9. Now, we don't do that as well because, uh, unfortunately, the church as a whole is not as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be. There, though, in Ezekiel, God commands an angel to do what? To put a mark on the foreheads of the men. Listen to what kind of men. Put a mark on the forehead of men who sigh. Men who groan over all of the abominations that is sin which are being committed in its midst. God commands an angel to put a mark on the forehead of men, and that would be generally, men and women, men who groan over the sin of Israel. The Lord gives Ezekiel a vision of a time when Israel would be judged for their sin. The Lord will not spare Those people who do not groan over sin. You know what it means to groan over sin, don't you? It's to look at sin and be saddened by sin. It's to to look at sin and be grieved by sin. It's not uh, those who look at sin and are happy at sin. Those who look at sin and applaud sin, the Lord will judge them. And, And here's specifically one of the things that the Lord says. These people who look at sin and don't groan over it, They say things like, God has forsaken this land. God's not even here. They say things like, God doesn't even see. To those people, God says, do not put a mark on them. 
We've heard of the mark of the beast, but God says, I, I'm putting my mark on, on these people who groan over sin. These people who, who are grieved over sin. The Lord will have no pity on those who say, God doesn't see me. God's not even here. He says, don't put my mark on them. But for the ones who look about at the nation of Israel, the, listen to this, the privileged nation of Israel. And don't groan over Israel's sin in light of all of Israel's privileges. Those who don't groan, they will not be saved. Israel is a, is a privileged nation, isn't it? They are those from whom the prophets have arisen. The prophets have arisen out of the Jewish nation, out of Israel. Now, they are those to whom God first holds out his divine message. They are the first ones to receive it. But Israel has rejected their privileges. They have squandered their inheritance. The Lord Jesus, in his uh, famous words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Now, we'll, we'll do a sermon on that one of these days. I'm sure that's a great question for some of you Calvinists. The Lord, as it were, brands those who are his. But does not brand those who are not. Those who are not his do not receive his mark, his seal. But those who are not his, they do get a mark. It's not the Lord's mark, though. It's the mark of the beast. Which we'll talk about when we get to Revelation 13. We are very familiar with the mark of the beast, but here the Lord declares that, that he has a mark as well. It is God's mark, God's seal. I hope that it's clear that, so there's not just one mark then. No, there's two marks. One from God and one from the beast, one from Satan. Who are you marked by this morning? Who, whose seal is upon you? We'll, we'll find out as we move forward. This mark would have also brought to the minds of those who were in the church this, the mark of the blood of the lamb that was placed over the doorpost of the children of Israel. You remember the Lord would come to judge the firstborn of all of those who were in Egypt. As a sign of his justice and judgment against sin. They would have, they would have said, oh yes, that mark that was on the doorpost. Yes, that's familiar. The Lord escaped from his judgment on that night. If any would sacrifice, listen, an unblemished year old lamb. Just before the sun went down was the instructions. Took the blood of the lamb, the unblemished lamb. Placed it on the, the two doorposts. Of the house. And then while the Lord passed through in judgment, those who had sacrificed that lamb were to roast that lamb and eat that lamb while the Lord passed through the land. Imagine. For those of us who remember the scenes of the Prince of Egypt or whatever movie it was, when they're, they're cowering in fear as, as a shadow passes by, there is no cowering for those who have the blood of the door, blood on their doorposts. They are celebrating with a feast, the scriptures say. 
amidst the, the, the cries and the screams of those who are losing their firstborn, those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost are celebrating and feast. God's salvation. God sparing them. What faith that must have taken. These are the instructions of the Lord. Follow these instructions and you will be saved. The seven churches would have heard of this seal from God and their hearts would have rejoiced in, in what? In knowing that in the same way that God has saved his people from his judgment in the past, he will do so in their present and in the future. For those who are sealed by God, they will be saved from the righteous judgment of God. God will not cluster the wicked with the righteous when he comes to judge. There, he will overpass or pass over those who are sealed with God's mark. Song of Solomon 2.4. The church declares about our Lord. Listen to this. He has brought me to his banqueting house. And his banner, or his seal, his mark over me is, is love. His banner over me is love. This is the background of the seal. Now, let's get into our second But What exactly is the seal? In Ezekiel, we are given a physical seal that comes with physical instructions. But when we examine, I'm sorry, Exodus, but we, when we examine Ezekiel, we are given something that's more symbolic. So let's go to our second point. What exactly is the seal or mark? Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Here, in the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of a time just before the time when God, when God would bring utter devastation upon the world in divine justice. But, before God unleashes His judgment... He ensures that all of his people are given a seal, a mark, so that they would not perish. We'll discuss this in a few moments, but for now, what is the seal? What's the mark? Let's discuss this for a moment because there's some important notes to make about this seal. As I mentioned, some of you may share the similar background as I But for those who are raised with my background, we were raised with this idea that the ones who are marked only are marked with the mark of the beast. We've already said that that's not the case. The Lord shows that there is another mark. It's the seal of Yahweh, the seal of the covenant Lord. It's given to those who belong to him, those who have he has decreed to save. God will not hold back or will hold back the four. In Exodus, it's it's literal, it's a physical mark, but but we've already made the point that the right reference to to Revelation seven is Ezekiel. So in the same way that Ezekiel's mark is symbolic, Revelation seven three's mark is also symbolic. Are you with me? If that's the, the correct reference point, and it is then just as Ezekiel's mark was a symbolic one, so is Revelation's mark a symbolic one. 
Therefore, when we are asking the question, what is the seal? Let's start by saying, well, it's not physical. What's the mark? It's not physical. It's, it's a spiritual mark, just like the one in Ezekiel. Now, it's important to note that we are not over-spiritualizing this text. We're not looking at Revelation and saying, you're just saying that nothing's literal then, right? Everything is just spiritual. Well, no, what we're doing is we are rightly interpreting the text in light of the appropriate allusions from other texts. That we're saying there's an appropriate reference point to this, this portion. What does it refer to? We go back to its appropriate reference and we say there's a connection being made here. God is communicating something to us and we must make right interpretations based on those connections. Are you with me? So then, since this is not to be understood as pointing to a physical mark, but a spiritual one, what's the mark? The seven churches of Asia Minor would have immediately known the answer to that question. And our hope is that you will as well. There's a church, one of the seven churches that would have, in my opinion, would have immediately said, I know the answer. I know the answer to that one. It's the church of Ephesus. Now, let's work through this. And we're going to go to Ephesians in just a moment. So if you want to get ready. Why would the church of Ephesus be, in my opinion, now, you can take my opinion or leave it, but why would they be the first ones to say, I know the answer to that question. Well, the Apostle Paul founded the Ephesian church. The Apostle Paul also pastored there for a time. The Apostle Paul left Timothy there to pastor. Later, John the Revelator, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, he would also minister there. They would all be there together at one particular point. They would have immediately recalled what was written to them in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 13. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 13, reads like this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the to his kind intentions, which he purposed on them, him in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heavens and things on the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Listen closely now to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Here's where we want to focus. Verse 13. In him. You also. After listening to the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Here we go. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 13. In him, who is him? Christ. You also, who? You church. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were what? Sealed. Marked. Does yours say marked? Sealed. With the promise, Holy Spirit. The question is not, what exactly is this seal? But dear ones, who exactly is this seal? Did you hear that? Not what 
exactly is the seal? Who exactly is the seal? The church of Ephesus would have shouted, the seal is the Holy Spirit. The seal is the Holy Spirit. They would have known. Uh, what is this promise? Lord Jesus said in John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you, you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. The seal is the person of the Holy Spirit. And being sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are also indwelt by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You, you are indwelt by the triune God. He, the Spirit, is the promised gift of the Father, declared by the Son, accomplished by the Son. Luke 29, or 24, 49. Behold, I am sending the promise, the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He is the promised Holy Spirit. And, it, and, and, and the tracing of this is interesting. The prophet Joel, we're going to go to Joel in a minute. The prophet Joel is given a vision from the Lord concerning, listen to this, the final days, the end times. Joel is given a vision of this. And in Joel chapter 2, it's a very interesting uh, verse. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, Joel says... It will come about after this, the Lord promises. Uh, that's actually the, 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 the heading there. That I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Joel sees a time, listen to this, in the end. When God will pour out His Spirit upon all manner of men. God will pour out His Spirit on young men, old men, male, female, listen to this, Jew and Gentile. That the promise of God is His Spirit will, will, will be poured out on all men. But that's not all that Joel sees, is it? Joel sees something else in verse 29 through 32. Listen, listen to the words. If you're not there in your, in your scriptures, listen to the words. I will display the day of the Lord. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth. Listen to this. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into, and the moon into blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord that comes. It will be, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors who calls on the Lord, who the Lord calls. Now, Joel not only sees God pouring out his spirit, but Joel sees this, this pouring out of the spirit as an end time work of grace. That, that, that what God does in the end time is, is pours out his spirit on all mankind. It is that God will seal his people with his spirit. Listen to this before the day of the Lord. The day that is always referenced as God's final judgment. The prophecy of Joel is picked up somewhere else. Someone else picks up on this prophecy, don't they? Uh, you will remember in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, during Peter's sermon, 
The onlookers, they are amazed at the speaking of the mighty deeds of God in tongues that were not native to those who spoke. And they begin to ask, what does this mean? Someone interpret this, 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 this going on right now. Someone interpret what's happening. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, or sealed with the Spirit, he comes and interprets for the onlookers the meaning of the things that were taking place. And what does he quote? Peter looks about, sees what's going on. And, and how does Peter interpret what's happening? Peter says in Acts 2.16, this is what was spoken at or of through the prophet Joel. He's looking at, at what's taking place and he says, this that is taking place is what Joel said would happen. And you will notice that Peter does not just quote the pouring out of the spirit portion. We would think God's pouring out his spirit. And that's the only portion that Peter needs to quote. But in fact, Peter quotes the entire portion of what I just read. Peter says that Pentecost was an advancing of the end time. Uh, Peter says that the, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost is a sign that the day of the Lord is near. That this occurrence is advancing, setting into motion the eschaton. The sealing of God's people as the Spirit is being poured out. God is saying, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine. And he's been doing that until this day. As he is preparing, as he's been holding back the four winds, if you will. If you can imagine, for, for all of the time, it may seem long for us, but in God's timetable, there is no time, Right? He's been holding back the four winds, holding back the four horsemen, saying, not yet. That one's still mine. That one's still mine. That one's still mine. But that's not the last place we see those phrases, is it? We, we don't just see him in Joel. We see Peter saying, it's, 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 it's here. It's happening now. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. Didn't we just read of the moon turning to blood? Are we not reading right now of, of this sealing of God's elect? Is it the exact same language? No. But throughout, the, throughout Revelation, John is constantly just pulling, pulling, pulling from different pieces of Scripture and saying... All of these things are right now happening. He's pulling from Joel, pulling from Ezekiel, pulling even from Pentecost. Pulling from the words of Christ. The point of all of that is this. The seal is the person of the Holy Spirit who is poured out on God's people in the end time. And you are a part of that. You and I are a part of that, that, that pouring out of God's spirit, that God marking those who are his eschaton, final days. Paul will say in Ephesians 1.14, who, the Holy Spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance 
with a view of view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Meaning God, as a way to show that you are his, gives himself to you. As a way to show that you are his, marks you with himself. His spirit is his pledge that all that is his is ours. Uh, when some of you were married, when I married my wife, that there was a pledge. The pledge is the ring. The ring is a symbol that all that I am is hers and vice versa. But God gives to you not a physical uh, something, but gives to you his spirit. We have been redeemed, purchased and sealed in Christ. The mark shows that you belong to him. His Holy Spirit within you is his mark upon you that you are his. It identifies you as belonging to him. Second Corinthians one twenty one. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in, in God and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? You don't, don't you and I like guarantees, right? I guarantee, yeah, two years you'll have to have no service. That's, that sounds pretty good, right? Uh, guarantee that this will not fail. Well, there is a guarantee from God by His Spirit that you are His and you will not be lost. His seal is a spirit. When do I receive this seal? Third point. When do I receive the seal? Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees or until the sea, until we have sealed, God says, the bond servants of our God on their forehead. Brothers and sisters, we've considered the background, the identity of the seal of the Holy Spirit. And now, when exactly does someone receive this seal? When exactly does someone receive the Holy Spirit? Since the Holy Spirit is the seal, when does someone receive the Holy Spirit? For myself, uh, many who are like me, we were taught that there is one work of grace when you believe, and then a second work of grace when you are filled. That feeling could also be, let's use these words interchangeably, marked, sealed, or here's another one for you, old timers like me, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We were taught there's a first work of grace, believing on the Lord. The second work of grace was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Accompanied by, the phrase they would use, is the evidence of speaking in tongues. Uh, Let me help some of you who are from my background. There is... No phrase, and I searched, no phrase in all of Scripture that says, have you been filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Not one Scripture that states this phrase at all. But it became dogma in my background. In my former tradition, it was only when someone began to speak in tongues that they would receive the Holy Spirit or this mark or this seal. It would be, again, a mark or a gift But that gift was expected for everyone to have. Today, we reject this as being false. We also reject this so-called second work of grace where you are marked, sealed, or filled. But before we cast aspersions on the charismatics, it might be interesting for you to know that 
it's not just on one side that there is a belief of a second work of grace. The Anglican theologian Richard Sibbs, some of you may have never heard of Richard Sibbs, but you've heard of this, this book, The Bruised Reed. Richard Sibbs also believed in a second work of grace that resulted in you being sealed. Uh, not only Richard Sibbs, but uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones also believed this, uh, as did Thomas Goodwin. Sibbs, what does this mean? Sibbs thought the sealing was a second work of grace where God stamped afresh the image of Christ upon the believer's heart. Where God stamped afresh the image of Christ upon the believer's heart. Meaning what? Uh, meaning believer who sometimes struggles to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness, that there comes a time when God in His mercy gives to them this second work of grace through understanding, and through understanding comes great love, and through great love comes a new walk of life. Sims would call this a second work of grace. Now, where is he getting this from? He's not just making it up. He's actually getting it from a passage that we've already read, Ephesians 1.13. And it simply reads something like this. In him you have been sealed after you have believed. Sibs took that to mean that first there is a believing, number one, and then after this believing, there's a step two, being sealed. Now, now where did he get this from? Well, again, he got this from his own life. He himself struggled. He himself uh, often wrestled with sin. And then Sibs came to a greater knowledge that produced in him a greater love, which made him feel like he was born again, again. You felt that before, haven't you? Sibs uh, believed that God came upon his children, gives them a heightened experience of his grace upon their lives. And this, according to Sibs, was an added work of grace, which resulted in being sealed. Again, Goodwin and Martin Lord Jones believe this as well. How could these men, these learned men, preachers of the gospel, believe in a second work of grace that resulted in a being sealed? And let me ask this, is there a step one, step two in conversion? Let's, let's flat out say it from the beginning. No. Not at all. There is no second work of grace. How so? Well, let's deal with this first one, the evidence of speaking in tongues. Some of you may say, well, go back to that one, right? I, I want to hear about that one. That's okay. This idea comes from Acts 19. Acts 19, if you'd like, you can turn there. Acts 19. Paul comes to Ephesus, listen to this, for the very first time, but it is his third missionary journey. Paul comes to Ephesus for the very first time, but it is his, his third missionary journey. And upon uh, walking into Ephesus, listen to this, he meets, look into my air quotes, disciples. Right? As he meets this, this, these disciples, he has a question for them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The disciples, they have no idea what he's talking about. It's important to note that the, the, the message of the gospel is spreading. And these disciples have never heard 
of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, they say as much in verse 2. No, we have never even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about. This is a what kind of journey for Paul? Missionary journey. Uh, Missionaries, do they go to places where the gospel is already preached? Well, not during Paul's time. Paul wanted to go to Spain because the gospel had not yet reached Spain. Paul's intention is to go places where the gospel has not yet been preached. He's advancing the gospel throughout the world. So Paul comes to Ephesus and he's bringing the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. Some commentators like Matthew Henry, they believe that these men, disciples, they actually do know about the Holy Spirit. But Henry says, but not in an experiential kind of way. I completely disagree with that. They're Gentiles. They most likely are not familiar with the Holy Spirit or the text of Hebrew, the Hebrew text, as Henry and maybe others might assume. It's not like they have their their Old Testament just in their back pocket and go, yes, we, we know about the Holy Spirit. These are Gentiles, not Jews. And Paul's on a missionary journey. He's not preaching to the church. Paul is taking the gospel to places where it had not been heard. So one of the errors is this assumption that, that, that disciples are disciples of Christ. But they are not. How do we know that they're not disciples of Christ? Because Paul asked them a question. Verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? Yeah, they said, yeah, I've been baptized. And Paul says, well, what baptism did you receive? We're filling in the blanks. They're, ha- they're having a discussion. Uh, John is is recording for us the main points here. Yes, we've been baptized. Paul says, what kind of baptism? Verse 3, they say, well, John's baptism. Who's John? Not, not John the Revelator. What John are they speaking of? Well, you should know that they're speaking of John the Baptist. These men were not disciples of Christ. They were disciples of John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist was there on the banks of the Jordan calling men to do what? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is is near. Ready yourselves. The Messiah is near. Well, these men, hearing the message of John, they they, I want to be ready. They go to the waters of of the Jordan and, and, and they want to be baptized. They are hearing John's message. That Messiah is near. It's most likely that they were baptized and, and did one of two things. They either got baptized and then went back to Ephesus, holding on to this message that John preached, waiting for Messiah. Or they stayed with John until John was beheaded and then went back to Ephesus. There's two options. There's something that wasn't clear to them, though, that Paul makes clear to them as they're having this discussion. In verse 4, John's, Paul says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. See that? He says, John was, was baptizing to ready people for the one who was coming, the Messiah. And they're going, well, well Really? I didn't know that. And and here's what Paul says. And he's come. He says to them, that's Jesus. What 
What starts to go on in these, listen, 12 men from Ephesus they are. They are. What goes, starts to go on in the minds of these 12 men from Ephesus? Wait a minute. I remember John saying in John one twenty nine, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I remember that. I remember John saying, he's greater than me because he came before me. Saying he's very God. I remember John saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And, and Paul goes, yeah, that's Jesus. Jesus, who we're filling in the blanks. Jesus, who died, who was raised and is now seated on high. We're filling in the blanks. Paul most likely said, and Jesus appeared to me. What happens? Paul saying the Christ you were waiting for, the, the Messiah you wait that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens in verse five? The, the Bible says in Acts nineteen five, when they heard, they capitalize that circle. It when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the first time they believed. Amen. They were holding on to promise until promise became a reality for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul, being an apostle, Paul being, uh, uh, working in the gifts as they were working at that time, lays hands on them. And they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. They are filled with His Spirit as they believed. And upon hearing, they are, uh, th- this, this gift of speaking in tongues happens. Well, someone might say, well, what about that gift of speaking in tongues? It's to authenticate Paul's message. That Paul is from Christ. Paul is from God. To whom? These 12 men who are going to go into Ephesus and declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. With Paul, this man told us about the Messiah. Here's what came forth. They start speaking in tongues. Those who are hearing in Ephesus would say, this is from God. So then the Ephesians to whom Paul would write. Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul preaches the gospel. Paul plants a church. Paul writes them a letter as he leaves the church and says, In him, you also. Imagine that the church is listening as you're listening. And Paul says, In him, you also. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Those 12 men who Paul first met would have stood up and said, Amen. I remember that day. I remember the day when Paul met us as he entered Ephesus and upon believing in the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was sealed with his spirit. They could stand up. They could testify. They were Baptists, I'm sure. They probably said amen. (laughs) When were you sealed? When were you sealed? When were you marked? Paul says in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, also believing, you were sealed. You heard. You believed. You were sealed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, Faith comes when you hear the message of Christ and believe you are sealed. God places His mark upon you and gives you ears to hear, eyes to see, minds that understand, hearts that believe the gospel of the message of Christ. That's when you were sealed. When you heard and believed. 
you are only able to hear because He opens your ears. Some of us, like myself, grew up in church all my life, and maybe because I was not hearing the gospel, that could be the case. But there was a point when, when my ears, my wife makes fun of my, my hearing, because I, I hear like I'm an 80-year-old man. Uh, there was a time when my hearing was opened, where I could finally hear and believe. That was a work of God's seal being marked upon my soul. What about Sibs and Goodwin and Lloyd-Jones in their view? How do we deal with these men? Let, let me just say, these men were pastors. This is what they saw in their church. It's what I see in our church. That men, women, boys and girls would be going along and then seemingly out of nowhere something clicks for them. Something clicks for them and, and they grow out of nowhere in ways that super, super exceed their, their growth prior to that moment. Yeah, they got it wrong. There is no second work of grace. There's a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteen, fourteen, go on and on, work of grace. There, there are these moments where we, out of nowhere it seems like, grow. And there is something being taught by one of your elders and all of a sudden we, we are growing in ways, uh, lights are turned on in ways that they had never been turned on before. There's these aha moments all throughout our walk with Christ. And it can feel as though we are being born again, again. What is that? The scriptures call that going from faith to faith. The scriptures call that going from faith to faith. From glory to glory. What do they say? Uh, Here a little, there a little. Isn't that true for your life? Can you not look back at 2021 and 2020 and 19 and so on and so forth and say, I've grown? Not as much as I'd like. But the Lord has been gracious to me and helped me to grow in areas that I am so thankful I'm better in today. Is there not a sense in which what you have confessed has produced in you? Joy unspeakable. We come to Christ in utter amazement at the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ that we have fellowship with Him in His Spirit. We come to know our triune God in the way that He has saved us and not many of us have skipped over the sovereignty of God, have we? It seems as though sovereignty is, is for many of us that, that apex and we go, I've reached the top. I'm here. The doctrine of God's absolute hand over my coming to Him in faith and over his electing all whom he has marked. Oh, this is, this is it. And then the clouds begin to clear and we realize, whoa, I've just begun. I've just begun. I, I pray that we learn that, that, that sovereignty is not the apex of the person and work of our triune God. That, that it's just one of the, listen to this, infinite steps that you and I will take in God's drawing us nearer to Him in knowledge and in love. It's just one of the infinite steps that you and I will take. We learn that He's unchanging. He's not like us. That He changes not. We learn that He's, he's unmoved. He's not like us. That nothing comes upon God to make God other than what He already 
is and always has been. We learn that, that He's not like us. That God is all that He is. That, that He is the great I Am. I had a wonderful conversation with my wife's brother the other day. And here was the question he had. The Lord is doing something in his heart. And, and it was just a, a simple two-point two question that, that led us to a great almost two-hour conversation. Where was God before creation and what was He doing? And I said, Brian, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. For almost two hours, we had this great conversation. God's not like you. Whenever you think about where is God and what is He doing, it's because you are always somewhere and you're always doing something. You're localized somewhere. God's not like you, Brian. He goes, oh, gosh. You're right. I've been thinking this whole time as I pose questions about God that the... the that they're questions that I would ask about myself, but, but he's not like me, is he? No, he's not. Think about the I am's that we often use in our day. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a pastor. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm happy. My I am's are always followed by something that I am going to become or will be or have been. But God's I am is simply that he is. There are no so-ons and so-forths followed by God's I am. He is all that he is. These are moments as though we feel as though we have had a second work of grace. Where we grow in knowledge and love of God. But dear ones, not just what we confess, is it? No. Christianity is not just about confessing right things. It's also about living in light of those right things. Number four, what is the function of the seal? Revelation 7, 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, what's the purpose of the mark? Why has he given to us his spirit? Four very brief Reasons, and I'm certain there are plenty, plenty, plenty more, but just to name a few. <clears throat> the Spirit identifies. The Spirit identifies. As we know, a seal or mark was used to establish ownership. Uh, you do that today, don't you? Some of you write your names in your Bible so that if anybody finds your Bible, they know who to re- return it back to. Uh, libraries do the same thing. There's, there's the, the stamp, their stamp inside of the book. Uh, Beale Library, so on and so forth library. The book belongs to the library there. Well, God fills his people with his spirit in order to identify those who are his. They have received his mark. In Revelation, Ezekiel, and in Acts, just there is an identity test that is taken. In Acts, Paul essentially asks this, what have you believed? You see there? It's an, an identity test. What do you believe? Because if you believe the wrong thing, then you are not identified with Christ. But if you believe the right thing, then you are identified with Christ. It's an identity test. He comes to the disciples and begins to question where they have placed their faith. In Ezekiel, there's another identity test. The Lord says, put the mark on those who groan, who are grieved over sin. It's an identity test. Do you love sin or do you hate sin? Are you... uh, Playing with sin, are you putting sin to death? It is an identity test. If you are putting sin to death, if you groan over sin, then it's because God has placed His mark upon you. If you enjoy sin, 
If you toy with sin, then you failed the identity test. Brothers and sisters, what's the test in Revelation? What's the identity test in Revelation? It's found at the very end of chapter 6. The great day of the wrath of God has come. Who was able to stand? The identity test in Revelation is the standing of the saints. How do you know you've been marked? May I say to every single one of you in your eye, if I could see you, when you stand, when you stand in the day of trouble, when you stand in the day of testing, when you stand in the day of tribulation, it is the identity test that you belong to Christ. When you stand, when you grieve over sin, when you confess the right things, and there are plenty more, I'm sure. Secondly, the Spirit authenticates. Not only identifies, but He authenticates. The authenticating work is the work of the Spirit. He authenticates those who are sealed so that they might be able to stand through tribulation. And their standing is as evidence of their being marked and sealed. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. The, the Apostle Peter says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for our, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, the proof of your faith, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The Apostle Peter says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope and the one in whom we have believed. This is the identifying effect of the Spirit. The Spirit identifies us who have truly confessed and we are authenticated. How? How is your identity authenticated? Standing through trial. Standing through difficulty. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6. Having done all. Having done everything. Stand. Stand firm. In Ephesians 6. That great passage of the armor of God. There are consistent exhortations to do what? To stand. To be strong. In whom? Not in yourself. How often... Are we admittedly weak? But Paul tells us to stand strong. Be strong, not in your strength, but be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord. Are you standing this morning? You are standing because God is enabling you to stand. Are you persevering this morning? You are persevering because God is enabling you to persevere. Do you have joy this morning? Is it full of glory, joy unexpressible? Then it is because God is producing that in you. 
If you're looking around and saying, why, why, why are there so many Christians with so much joy and I have none? Then, dear one, go to God. Ask Him to give you joy inexpressible. Ask Him to give you strength to stand. Ask Him to help you to persevere. You are, you are saints of God. Marked by His Spirit. Is there not a reason for joy? We should be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. How are you standing? How are you persevering? Why do you have joy? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Because His banner over you is what? Love. His Spirit preserves what what is the function of this? it preserves his spirit it he preserves i should say do you know that god is preserving you you are being kept by god psalm 121:7 the lord will protect you from all evil he will keep your soul someone may say good i'm never going to get harmed he will protect your soul i'm never going to get sick again he will protect your soul In this life, you will suffer many different afflictions physically, but He will protect your soul. You will not be lost. Proverbs 2.11, understanding will watch over you. What do you know? What do you understand about God? That will keep you in the day of testing. Do not let what you know be lost when trouble comes. It's what you know about God that pushes you through. I know He will never leave me. I know He will never forsake me. I know that He will protect my soul. Second Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That's sin. He will rescue me from sin and bring me safely into His kingdom. What is that? It's a protection of your soul. He will bring your soul safely into His kingdom. Isn't that good news? For those of you who are wondering, who are, who are troubled, am I saved? Do I belong to Him? He will bring you safely into His kingdom. Again, spiritual harm. The promise of God is this, your soul will not be lost. Your soul will not be lost. In the day of tribulation, because you have been sealed, because you have been marked, you will not abandon your faith. You will not lose your soul. I also believe this, you cannot be overcome by a demon. That there is no demon, little ones, older ones, there is no demon that can possess you if your faith is in Christ and if you are sealed, marked by His Spirit. Amen. Don't walk around your house saying, you know, smoke and incense all around your house trying to get rid of demons. That's witchcraft. Don't let somebody come over to your house start laying hands on the walls of your house. If you are in Christ, you are sealed by Christ. If you are in Christ, you are sealed by His Spirit. Don't let somebody come around you and start laying hands on your bed. Trying to exercise demons out of your bed. If you are in Christ, you are sealed in Christ. No spirit can overcome you. Can you be afflicted? Paul was afflicted. And it was sent by the Lord. Paul had a thorn in his side. Sent from the Lord. A messenger of evil. Yes, it was. It was a constant bothering. There will be people in your life, though you may not be demon-possessed, they might be. 
And see it as a testing of the Lord. See it as God is using this person to sharpen me. Remember. Remember when the the four horsemen ride. What is their purpose? It is both to judge and to refine. Those who are in your life, situations that come that are difficult, they are being used to refine your faith. To make you stronger. To help you to grow in Christ. But there is no demon that will come inside this house. Not this one. Nor yours if you are filled with the Spirit. Because you are marked. You are being kept by God. You are being kept by God. You will not be lost to eternal hell. Why? Because you are being kept by God. The Lord Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You are secure in Christ. Our standing cannot be harmed. It cannot be overturned. It is immutable in Christ. What's the purpose of this seal? The fourth and quickly, it's to conform us to Christ. Identify us, authenticate us, preserve us, and to conform us. Saints, this is an understated point that that Pastor Isaiah has done a wonderful job in his deification sermon. The Lord commands you to be holy. Believe and be holy. Believe and be holy. Is this not commanded again and again and again? Peter said that our response to the gospel, to the message must be this. Obedience to truth and fervent love for the saints. But that's not all. Peter would not only or would note the quality of the redeeming blood of Christ. He says, you have been born again, not of a seed which is imperish- or perishable, but imperishable. The, that is, through the living word and enduring word of God. God has saved you. You've been saved by the word of God, the imperishable word. The word is not like the grass that's here today, gone tomorrow. The word will ever, will, will ever last. It will endure. And if you've been saved by this message, if you believed this message, if this theological confession is yours, then it should produce a life of holiness before God. Paul, Peter says, therefore, rid yourself. You should say yourself to, to that whenever you are faced with sin. Rid yourself. Therefore, in light of who has saved you, the word that is always last, rid yourself, therefore, of all. And then he goes through this list of sin. All you need to say is all. All sin. Rid yourself. Put on Christ. Be clothed in Christ. Rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, so on, sin, so on, sin. Rid yourself of these things. Are they becoming of who you are in Christ? Not in the least. Then he says that you might desire... Get rid of the sin. Rid yourself of it. That you might desire the pure milk of the word so that you might grow in your salvation. And then he says, that is if you've tasted and seen that he's good. Is he good? Then get rid of this stuff. Because it's not good. Instead, desire this is much better. Is he good? Have you tasted and seen that he's good? Then get rid of all of this stuff. You've seen that it's, it's filth compared to what he's offering you. Go for the milk. Go for the meat. Why would you play with this cupcakes and ice cream?
Do you see the wonderful way that right theology should have an impact on our doxology before God? What we believe must affect the way that we live. If, if it does not affect the way that we live, then God give us grace that we might find joy in our salvation. Paul would say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all, he says. Put away foolishness. Put away foolishness. My wife the other day said, I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson. All I remember him saying was, put away foolishness. Put away foolishness. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Right now. Right now. God is making you and me like Christ. Pastor Isaiah, what's that called? He was a deification. Yes. He is making you like God. Making you like Christ. Readying you for glory. Fifth and finally. How do I know that I've been sealed? This is going to be the shortest point. Have you heard? Have you believed? Are you standing through trial? Are you persevering through the power of God in your life? Do you long to be conformed to Christ? Are you putting away all foolishness? Then dear saint, you have been marked by God. And you were promised new life in Christ everlasting. Rejoice therefore. You are sealed by God. To God be the glory. Let us pray.